Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. Let's get growing. Hi, listeners. I'd like to invite you to visit our website at organicgardenerpodcast.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, download our ebook on organic gardening basics, and get started on building your very own organic oasis today. Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to introduce two guests from uh, the Willamette Valley in Oregon, and they're here to talk about one of my favorite things today, flowers. So I would like to welcome to the show, Denise and Tony Getz. I should have asked. That's Gates. It's Gates. <laughs> okay. Welcome to the show, Denise and Tony Gates. Hi. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your farm and about yourself. Okay. Um, we live in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. Um, we've been on our farm for about 27 years. 27 years. We have 10 and a half acres, but we grow flowers on only about an acre and a half. Um, we've been doing this for, we've just completed our 11th year. So starting next year will be our 12th season. Um, we're kind of, this is our second, um, careers. We, um, both had previous life and sort of semi-retired, but not really retired because this is a lot of work. Um, but we're doing something that I think that both of us really, really love. It's it's hard work, and but we super enjoy it. We have um, four unheated, unlit hoop houses that we have built. Um, we have a little greenhouse where we um, start everything, and... Um, for the first 10 years of our business, we um, sold in the farmer's market in Corvallis, Oregon. And uh, a couple of years ago, the demand for our flowers from florists and designers increased. So we started to sell directly to you know, florists and designers. And uh, the farmer's market was a blast and we really loved it. But you know, it was a lot of work and it was very long days. And so we decided that we would kind of just let that one go and then just sort of focus on um, selling to directly to floor shops and designers all up and down the valley from Portland all the way to Eugene. Yeah, we're what you might call a micro farm in a sense that our objective isn't to get you know, become a world flowers inc, but is to take um, and using sustainable practices, develop um, a nice business that really concentrates on selling in a local area. So we sell basically from Eugene, Oregon, which is the southern end of the valley, to Portland, which is the northern end. And um, a lot of what we do is, I mean, everything we do is seasonal. We do some season extension, as Denise talked about, in our hoop houses. But what we try to do is um, get our our product that is at peak for our area um, and kind of work it that way. Instead of, you know, like um, we were trying to raise, you know, orchids in the middle of winter or something like that. We concentrate, well, sweet peas are on in June. So it's that sort of thing that... Um, 
we kind of try to keep an emphasis on is keeping it seasonal. <clears throat> awesome. You guys are going to be full of golden nuggets. I know people are going to be excited to hear this, and I have so many questions already. So, all right, but before we go there, do you want to each tell us a little bit? I would kind of like to start the show by asking about your very first gardening experience. Like, how old were you? Who were you with? What did you grow? Where were you? Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your, like, initial gardening backgrounds? Okay. Um, I've been growing flowers and veggies since I was a little kid. Uh, I think my first experience with flowers is about seven years old, growing pansies in Montana. And um, uh, when my family moved to Oregon later on, uh, it was kind of my family or my responsibility in the family to grow as many vegetables and learn to preserve and can them and and freeze them and whatnot for the family. And I always had sort of an interest in plants, and I spent a lot of time in in high school and early college in um, horticulture programs. I also worked several years for, uh, for florists. So I've always been really interested in um, growing things, particularly, you know, food and, but my passion was, you know, pretty flowers. Yeah, I'd say in my, my respect, I mean, I started when I was a kid too. Uh, the family's always had a garden and uh, when I was 12 years old, it became my assigned chore. And, you know, when you're a 12 year old, it's like, oh, great, you know. But um, I really started getting into it and, and um, learned a lot. I just started reading a lot, you know, for a 12 year old, that's a little weird. But um, I, I read a lot of organic gardening magazines and kind of became really intrigued with the whole idea. And this is now back in the 1970s. So you got to think about 1970 to 1972 in that range of time. And we, uh, our family really kind of um, followed organic practices. And I learned a lot just by reading and, you know, what my family had done at that point. And it's kind of like, as you know, I, we got to a point where we had our own place. I mean, it was really kind of a natural thing just to start, you know, the whole process again. And were you raised, Tony? Are you from Montana too? Or are you from Oregon or somewhere else? Or no, well, kind of. My father was in the. Uh, he worked for the uh, the army for. It was in the army and worked for the army for most of his career. So we moved around a lot. Oh, okay. Uh, wasn't necessarily on military bases, but. Um, we lived back East in Virginia and lived in California and Washington and just kind of, um, you know, as his career went, we, we went. So, um, that was also part of the challenges. New places always presented, you know, a whole new set of new challenges. So we met here at Oregon state university. Yep. We both attended the university. That's where we met. And after we graduated, we were married and been growing gardens and flowers ever since. Sweet. I like that. Uh, okay. Do you want to tell us what organic gardening or earth friendly gardening means to you? Well, that's kind of our philosophy. Um, if, if you go back, I mean, a lot of, of these philosophical things, you know, kind of evolved over 
a period of time. Um, sources of inspiration, I'd say, for us have been, uh, besides J.I. Rodell, um, there's also um, Fukuoka and natural farming, um, uh, learning a lot more about permaculture and, and that movement. Um, so what we try to practice here philosophically is, is, is we're not certified organic, but I'd say in many respects, we're beyond organic. Um, in, in a, I mean, I don't mean that in a haughty way, but I, I mean, it's a lot of organic farmers nowadays use a lot of organically approved things that could be called pesticides or um, fertilizers or uh, herbicides even. And we tend to uh, not use anything other than replacement of the minerals in the soil itself. We use natural fertilization in terms of compost that's either made here on site or uh, we know that there's recycled, uh, we use some recycled compost that's uh, made by a company here locally. And so what we try to do is keep um, the soil fertility up um, and that's really kind of the key. Our focus, we start with the soil and, and you know, kind of build from there. And our philosophy has been a healthy plant grown in healthy soil doesn't really need a lot of additional fertilizers or um, pesticides or things of that nature, you know, as best as we can. And also, too, as we go through and, and we look at what we grow, we make decisions about, you know, there are just some things that don't grow well in our particular uh, location or our particular climate. And we try to, you know, look at the plants that thrive the best here. Awesome. I love it. And I think that's exactly what my listeners like to hear things like that. And it's inspirational because you're doing it. And so the people who don't know are learning. You don't have to put those chemicals on there. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, well, you kind of answered the who inspired you and how did you learn? So do you want to go right? Well, there's one thing that we could add on who's inspired is um, we were also inspired by a lot of our local growers. Since we spent so much time at the farm market, there's been a whole lot of um, growers that sell at the market that are uh, fantastic people to um, follow and understand and and kind of emulate their practices. We got a lot of that from a couple of uh, really terrific growers and Denison's um, family farm and gathering together farm. Both of those um, are doing fantastic things with season extension and organic practices, sustainability, and they were very kind to us in helping us, you know, find our way along the way. So we're always inspired by what other small time, small people, local growers are doing and, you know, and, and then paying for it also with what we learned. Yeah, I mean, philosophically, part of what we kind of look at is, I mean, there's some circles that say, well, if you learn this information, you know, it's worth money and you should charge for it and that sort of thing. But what we try to do is is um, help the new growers, you know, avoid some of the dumb things we did. And uh, so it's kind of like Denise is saying, you know, paying it forward is, is kind of more of a, an obligation. And we kind of look at it from a philosophical standpoint that knowledge 
you know, to help people, particularly local, either local food or local flowers, but local agriculture, um, things that can thrive on a micro basis is different than a mega farm, you know, farms that have 5,000 acres and millions of dollars of equipment. We certainly, we don't operate that way at, a, at, a, you know, at any level. So a lot of what we do um, is kind of somewhat under the radar sometimes. And some, I mean, there are companies that are starting to pick up on it that there are a significant number of small farms that need unique tools and things of that nature. Yep. And now I want to say I found you guys because on Facebook you posted you were had some, was it dahlias? And people just like were signing up like crazy. Oh, that was the Lusianthus that we were giving a try this winter. Okay. So you want to tell listeners about that? Because, I mean, it just seemed like wasn't there was just like this huge response, right? Well, yeah, Lusianthus is a tricky flower. It's an absolutely beautiful flower. It kind of looks like a rose. Um, and But it's a tricky flower to get started from seed. It takes an incredible long, long time to get it started. And sometimes it's it doesn't even germinate. And so we've been playing around with trying to figure out how to get that thing to germinate and then how to get it up to size and into the ground. And... Lo and behold, we were experimenting, which is what we do an awful lot. We kind of try things and just to see if that will work. And so we decided that we would try the Lysianthus for a cooler period of planting because we had such a rough time this past summer with it being way too hot for them. And so... We got them to germinate in uh, soil blocks that we have been working with, and the um, they grew up nicely, and so we put them into the ground as a total experiment of can we make them grow through the winter? It, you know, they are fairly cool season-ish, although they do well in the summer, um, but we wanted to see if we could make them you know, grow and bloom kind of early in the spring next year. And so that was our experiment. And I just posted it out there to the flower farmers as, you know, hey, take a look at what we're getting experiment and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. Yeah, our, our comment was, well, if it works, you're going to hear about it. If it doesn't, it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh so then, is that what grew well this year, or you want to tell us about something else that grew well this year? Well, what grew well for us this year was um, anemones. Um, there are a few other things, but I'll just start with the anemones because it's one of my favorite flowers. And the reason that I so love anemones is because they just are the toughest little plant and flower that you can imagine. They can grow through sometimes some of the roughest weather we can have. We do grow them in an unheated hoop house or what we call a crate house because we're growing them currently 
in crates in in a little house, mostly to keep the the cold Oregon rain off of them. It's not so much that you know it's protecting them for frost, although we do provide some frost protection. But we've uh, had them make it through with some pretty rough cold cold winters, and they're one of the first flowers that will bloom for us. The uh, the goal is always to try and see if we can get them on Valentine's Day because they're our florists and designers just absolutely love them, and they're just so bright and cheery and such a pretty flower for Valentine's Day. Something different than the traditional rose or or um, you know carnation or whatnot. And anyway, so this year we. Um, we were able to harvest our first um, anemones on the 15th of January. So we were so excited that we had them in time for Valentine's Day. Um, other things, other flowers that we grew that were really successful for us this year were scented geraniums. Um, the, um, we had a nice 100-foot row of cinder geraniums that, because we had such a mild winter last year, we were able to keep protected. And then when the weather warmed up, they just started to go crazy. And so we were able to harvest them um, probably from early May. Mm -hmm. Early May until our first really hard frost in November. That was about a week before Thanksgiving. I think that was about as far as we got. Um, we, we've also done a lot of things like um, snapdragons. Um, interestingly enough, you know, snapdragons, you think, well, that's a pretty common flower, but there are some new varieties that are what they call open face. Butterfly. And, and they're um, they don't have the traditional little snapper look. They have a that, like an open petal uh, look to them. And um, the florists really have been receptive to that. And we we grew a lot of those. Sweet peas are always a big thing. Um, it just reminds folks of uh, maybe simpler times or maybe what their grandmother did or something of that nature. And and then there's also in the early part of the uh, tulips. You know, we do um, quite a few of the um, taller varieties. Um, the shorter ones are typically the ones that more get shipped in the wholesale side of things. So we kind of tend to look at um, maybe a more little unusual colors or a taller stem or something, you know, it sets them apart as being different. They're also petals, uh, parrots, excuse me, or mm -hmm. doubles. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> So we kind of, our season goes from uh, like last year, start on January 15th and we went to Thanksgiving. That's kind of maybe a little longer than normal. I'd say our normal on a normal year usually goes from about the 1st of February, maybe the 1st of November. Um, it just seems like the climate for whatever reason this last year was um, exceptionally warm. And uh, so it enabled things to kind of move along faster than than what would be considered normal. And since we're un um, we don't light up when the day length gets shorter and shorter, 
um, as hard as we want to keep the flowers going, um, they just stop producing nice big blooms and, you know, so they may not die, but they just, they don't produce, you know, and we we, just have not gone to putting in any kind of lighting and any of that kind of stuff. And there's typically kind of a dead zone from where plants, at least where we are, don't grow that much, even if the temperatures are moderate. And that usually runs when you have day length that goes from below nine hours. And then when it hits nine hours on the app, the other side coming out, things start growing again. So, you know, sometimes kind of nervous this time of year when you say, oh, I got my ranunculus in as an example. And that's another one of our good crops. And you go, wow, they just don't seem that big. You know, at Christmas time, they should be bigger than that. So they're going to hit. But it's just like, you know, as soon as they hit that nine hour mark, it's just like, bam. I mean, they they take off and it's incredible the change that these plants can make in, you know, a very short period of time. So what they're really doing under there is the roots are all growing and getting bigger and stuff. So that when we do hit that increase in hours and they start to really grow up, they've got a really super great um root system, then that's a stronger plant that will put out more blooms and the blooms will be bigger. Yeah. That's our hope, that we got really big, fluffy blooms. Have Have you guys heard of Lisa Ziegler? Lisa Ziegler? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Flowers? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's been my guest twice, and she talks a lot about the same thing, And but she's on the other coast in Virginia. So awesome. Yeah, I was going to I was going to tell people they should remember her book for Christmas because actually I think we have her book. We have her book. It's already been it's, read from cover to cover. It, it had a lot of interesting things in there. She does. She just has documented and just this amazing wealth of information. And what really made me think about it when you were first talking because you were talking about the soil blocks. So is that where you got them from? Cause she's the first one I ever heard about those soil blocks. No, actually, we've been doing it for a number of years. We've been in a transition away from plastic plugs. What started it with us was we just got tired of plastic. You know, it's just the and and then the other thing is is what we notice is the quality of the plug. Um, when and I mean the plug trays work well in a large industrial type greenhouse. You know, where they have automated machines that fill them and plant them and all that kind of stuff. And then they use a, you know, a nice chemical soup of fertilizers and et cetera. But what we noticed was for us as a small grower that the quality of the plant, the roots tended to get really, no matter how much you tried to do it, they'd kind of swirl around the edge of the plastic. And the plant was actually not, um, didn't develop as good a root system. With a soil block uh, system, what we've noticed is that the plants develop a more, um, even root growth and that the fact that the edge of the block even has a minute amount of air around it um, will actually root prune the plant so the roots will stop growing they won't wrap back around these themselves so the plant actually ends up with a much better root system and that's what kind of drove us to start to do it was it was producing a much better plant they were stronger seedlings to put in and then the other thing (laughs) it was kind of sort of serendipity for us is it bought us a little more time. There's just the two of us and there's a million jobs to do on the farm. And, you know, even though we want to get them on 
that seedling into the ground on that specific day. Sometimes you just, you know, it's a week or you have a breakdown on it or you need to do some wild soil prep. The plant continues to grow in and, and thrive in that soil block. And so it gives us, you know, it's like, oops, we missed that deadline by, you know, 10 days. Oh, well, the plant still looks really good and we get them in and they, they thrive. Well, and the soil block, like as an example, if you start something on a smaller block, like what they call a three-quarter size, which is what Lisa was doing a lot of. Minis. Minis. And um, if you need more growing on time, she plants, like what we saw in her book, she plants a lot of them direct, even you know, in the small minis, but you can bump these guys up to a, a two-inch block. And um, the nice thing about that is, is it really cuts down on fertilization because in a two-inch block, you've already built the fertility into the block mix itself. And so what really then becomes important is just even moisture. And the plants will really thrive. And we don't have to do as much fertilization inside of the propagation house when they're growing on. Uh, matter of fact, very little uh, in most cases. Because most of these guys, they'll grow in the two-inch block if we bump them up for maybe three weeks or so. With the exception of Lysianthus. Going back to that one from seeding to putting in the ground is 12 weeks. So that's that one has to grow on for a while to get to the right size. But everything else is usually, you know, it's about two or three weeks in, in the two inch block if we do it. In, and then it goes in as a much more vigorous plant. Cool, okay. Do you, do you wanna explain more about what block the block plug thing is in case people haven't heard that okay yeah if people talking to her it wasn't until i read her book that like second time through that i really understood what they were or maybe it was the yeah, but... where i saw them that it... okay um well a great resource for anybody uh, is johnny's seeds they've been doing a lot of stuff on their website and they also sell the um blockers. the blockers um in various types you know for small places you don't need a big huge one that stamps out 20 of them at a time um, you can get the handheld ones um, either uh, any size from a three quarter inch to one and a half to to, to two inch and that and they have videos on how to do them too we um, developed the mix uh, the basis of it is from Elliot Coleman's book uh, the new organic grower and um, that's Really, um, the key for us that we found is is making our own mix. Um, we tried using you know mixes that were uh, pre-done, but the ratios of things weren't right. The, um, the blocks didn't set up correctly. The right ratio of peat moss to minerals to soil is is very important. And so um, if you start from that basis using Elliot Coleman's mix, which is roughly three parts peat to, you know, one one part um, uh, compost, and then one part and then uh, you put in one part of your own soil into it. And then we put our own soil in it. We we have some areas on our place that have uh, fir trees. It's, it's not really exactly forests, but. Uh, Firs and evergreen trees tend to develop really good mycorrhizal um, fung 
fungi relationships. And so we take some of that soil from there and kind of add it as an inoculant to our own. And that I think has made a huge difference. That's one of the things that people don't do is they don't put some of their good soil, you know, that has some of the, the natural funguses and things of that nature in there. Um, that, um, just that step alone really made a big difference in terms of, um, eliminated damping off. We don't get that anymore at all. Um, and, and so, um, kind of starting from that point is, is, you know, you can get yourself into it really pretty easy. The blockers aren't that expensive, the handheld ones. And, um, you know, you don't have to buy plastic. That's the nice thing. <laughs> the other reason that we moved to soil blocks is particularly a space issue. Um, when we um, decided that we wanted to get a little greenhouse, and I mean, it's little. Yeah, um, it's it's probably 12 foot by 12 foot. That's just what it we was just seeding. a hobby. Uh, you know, at that point, we didn't think we were going to be running production through it. But now we need to. And so by doing the minis, the minis, um, we can seed um, 300 at a tray at time. And when you're limited to space under lights or heating mats or whatnot, you know, his maximum amount of per tray is what I needed to be able to do and run through my greenhouse. So that was another reason is that I could con continue to increase my production of getting, you know, my seedlings germinated, and then we bump it up and move it into a, a propagation house where it just grows on. But in my greenhouse, that's where I can do it, where I can get the bottom heat if I need it or under lights or whatever is required for the seed. We also start our, our seedlings a little different than, than Lisa. Lisa uses um, a tray method where it's kind of like a cafeteria tray. And we um, kind of evolved different because we had we used what we had. And they're, they're what they call these V-bottom 1020 trays. Well, we got basically from a local nursery who is getting rid of these things. And um, what we'll do is, is we use that in conjunction with a capillary mat. Now, capillary mat is like, it's like felt, but it's very water absorbent. And what we do is we'll um, make our soil blocks and put them in these weave bottom trays and then set it inside of another tray that, that keeps a wet piece of capillary mat in it. So solid tray. So it's a solid tray in the bottom. So there's no water leakage out. But what that does is as the key, one of the keys that I think a lot of people have with soil blocks is they let them dry out. And it's really easy to do to dry out if it's a small block. So this capillary mat allows even consistent watering. And as the plant germinates, the roots um, through capillary action are going to pull water out of the mat. And so the soil block itself maintains a really even moisture. You don't need to water overhead at all. Yeah, you just water the capillary mat. You pull the little mesh thing out with the, uh, the uh, little soil blocks on it, water the mat, set it back on, and there you right. go. So you don't have to overhead water or mist or anything like that and run the risk of washing the little tiny seeds off the block. It it works really slick. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about it is, is, is because when you're watering overhead, you can either overwater too much or 
water or it, and this keeps an even moisture in the entire tray. So um, as she Denise was saying, in a tray, you can get 300 starts on a tray. It works out really pretty well. Um, you can get the capillary mat from companies like FarmTech. Um, they sell it. It and comes you can in a big, huge roll, but you, we you, cut it up. Yeah, you, you can get it in a 100-foot roll, but you could probably also find it at other nursery um, supply places. Um, but it's it's been very, very useful. And, and that, um, I mean, it seems to work for us. So. I like that. I'll bet listeners' heads are just spinning because this could apply to lots of different things, right? Because can, can you do this? You could do this with food sprouts, too, just as easy, right? I mean, it's not just oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. like anything you're growing, especially the, to me, the ones that are super hard are like broccoli, peppers. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, see, like what we do for, for things like um, in, in some cases on the veggies, what for our own garden, what we would use is um, lots of times on things, uh, one and a half inch soil blocks and start them, you know, the larger the seed. The minis are great for flowers because most flower seeds are very small. Very small. <laughs> um, but a lot of veggie seeds are, are not. So the veggies work really well uh, in like one and a half inch blocks. As an example, when we do our onions, um, we'll take a one and a half inch block and multiple seed, like four seeds or so, four or five seeds in a, in a hole. And the onions tend to grow up. So when you plant the block in the ground, um, there'll be like four bulbs around in a, in a spot as they grow up. I don't know if that makes any sense. The same thing is kind of like for um, uh, some other veggies that we do that with too. Um, then there are some that we just direct seed just because they seem to do better that way, radishes and things of that nature. But yeah, the soil block method would would work excellently with vegetables. It especially works. It especially works really well if you find that you have a particular type of plant that doesn't like to be transplanted. Um, when you you know if you've got one of those and you take the little tiny square, um, the cube, the mini block, and all you're doing is you're picking that up and sticking it into the exact same size hole in the bigger block then you plant the whole block. You haven't really disturbed anything. Yeah. And so the plants that's, that resent, you know, that they say resent transplant, this is a good way of, you know, not having to yank them out of uh, plastic or, or even using a pea pot and tearing it off or any of that kind of thing. It's just, you know, it just lifts nicely, drops back into the soil, and then that whole next cube goes directly into the field and no disturbance. Cool. I like that a lot. I wanted, what, you said something about, uh, was it eliminating um, drop-off or tamping? Oh, oh yeah. damping off? Yeah. What's damping Yeah, it's a fungal uh, disease that affects basic, mostly at the stem of young seedlings right at ground level. And it's a fungus that invades the, the stem and basically the vascular part of the stem collapses and the plant falls over and dies. Um, by having our own 
um, soil as an inoculant of uh, mycorrhizal fungi in there, and as well as probably some that I don't even know about. Um, what what is done is it's kind of like you know you've used the good fungi to combat the bad, and by not creating an environment that's overly wet, which can easily be done with overhead watering and using the capillary mat. Between those two things, um, we've pretty much eliminated that as a problem. Nice. Cool. Uh, yeah, and there was a lot of problems, I think, with things like that this year. People talking about funguses and um, what was that big one? The... Well, our, our philosophy has always been that, you know, if you look at nature as an example, um, things that are growing naturally usually don't get attacked by insects or funguses unless something's out of balance. And so balance is very important, um, kind of from a philosophical standpoint, balance in the soil of the minerals, balance in, um, you know, the fertility, balance in how you and And that's the important thing. If the plant has the optimum things to survive, it will have its own defense mechanisms against most of the things that you would find as a common, um, you know, diseases that people immediately reach for a chemical or some other palliative to kind of, you know, get rid of. But when we start seeing something like that happen, the first thing that we think about is, okay, what's wrong with the environment that the plant is in that's causing it to be in a weakened state um, that allows bad things to happen? But in a, in a natural sense, most things, if there isn't a stressor from the environment in there some way, like, you know, too dry, too wet, too hot, too cold or something, um, a lot of it is really soil driven from our perspective. And getting the right balance of minerals in the soil really helps a lot. Awesome. That's perfect. And I think that's uh, very true. Uh, and I just love to share that because I think that's what people, I mean, that's like one of the biggest things that I've learned since I started the show last February. So I'm sure people are, you know, still learning and excited to hear that there are options to chemicals because that's a big question people talk about are pests. And so by, and just disease, pests and disease, like why things don't grow well. So teaching people the options is the whole point of the show. So nice nuggets there. Uh, how about something you guys are excited to try next year? Is there something new or different that you're excited about going to do? Um, uh, what we're growing besides the winter lysianthus, which we're really hoping that that's going to work. Um, we're also um, growing um, what is called Italian ranunculus. Um, we did a small little tiny sample of them last year and, um, they were really, really small corms and the blooms were beautiful, but we didn't get a whole lot of them because they were really tiny. And this year we decided to really invest in it. So we've got, um, two... 200 foot rows of the Italian ranunculus in what we're hoping are really pretty colors of salmon, white, and pink. And um, we're really excited about that because if we can really grow them well and get them, you know, really nice, they can be up to the size of small peonies. 
with multiple, multiple, you know, tissuey, paperly blooms that are just, you know, so loved by all of our designers and florists. And although we grow, have been growing ranunculus since 2004, these Italian ones are new, really new for us. And they're just being brought into the United States to have American growers growing them. And so we're super excited about um, being able to grow those. Well, they are just gorgeous. And I love, I'm looking at the pictures on your website uh, and they are just full of blooms. And, and like you said, they do look like kind of like, not miniature roses, I wouldn't say in any way, shape, or form, but just like, just really nice full ones. Uh, yeah, and, and then one of the other things that we're working on for this next year is um, more woodies. We're trying to get m more things that would be um, useful for greens or other kinds of fillers. That's been, a lot of what we've raised has been mostly focal flowers, and so this is kind of, um, because we were so oriented to farmers markets for years, that's what kind of people really wanted. They wanted, you know, the flower, not so much, well, you know, maybe necessarily any kind of filler behind it. And so we're experimenting with things like hypericums and um, uh, snowberry and um, and then the cotinus is, a, is another species, which is a form of nine bark and um, and eucalyptus. So, and it's so in conjunction with like our scented geraniums, which you did this year, we'll also be uh, doing a lot more of, uh, there's a couple varieties of dusty millers that we're gonna throw in there. So we got a kind of a, kind of a broad variety of things that we're gonna try for this next year. We're also gonna try and incorporate um, more herbs too. Um, basils, there's certain basils that make, that make a, a nice cut for a bouquet, um, rosemary, lavender, sages, um, pineapple sage, lemon verbena, all of those things can be, uh, add something nice and interesting to, you know, people's bouquets. And the best part about adding sometimes an herb is during the summer when flowers stop having fragrance, um, that a nice herb addition to it would be something lovely in the bouquet for a nice smell, something scented like cinnamon in basil or lemon in lemon verbena or the wonderful smell of rosemary and that kind of thing. So we're trying all those kind of things in a small way and seeing what the response is for that. Cool. Tell me about growing eucalyptus. That was my brother's at his wedding. Him and his wife had these beautiful eucalyptus, um, you know, like little gift favors. I still have mine on my art desk, and that's they're going to probably celebrate 20 years this year. And, but I still can remember how pretty it smelled. Like, do you have to be, could I grow eucalyptus in Montana? Um, yeah, you treat it kind of like a uh, seasonal uh that we do in, in a sense because um well it's not every winter it dies out here in the valley but um there are varieties that um well let's put it this way when people want them in a floral the shape of the leaf is kind of that silver dollar look 
So they kind of want that kind of look, and that's usually only on the very juvenile plants that have that. So what we do is we start these guys from seed uh, pretty close to right around this time of year. And then uh, they'll be, you know, whip size and harvestable probably um, early next fall. So it takes uh, a while for them to grow on. And uh, we'll start them in you know, many soil blocks, just um, like a lot of the other flowers and, and uh, grow them on from there. In some cases, you know, like Montana, um, I, I know you're up like in the northwestern corner, right? So you're like in the mountains too, right? Yeah. Uh, I think you'd be a little problematic trying to grow that, you know, out in the field and say um, it's going to make it through. But but it would grow, and it grows pretty rapidly once the plant has uh, it, it germinated. And so even if you're growing them in the field, if you got them started now, you know, and, and nursed them, uh, you know, and planted them out in the field uh, as soon as you're frost, they're going to be pretty frost sensitive. So your, your frost chance of frost has to be gone before you stick them in the field. The chances are you could get some pretty good size whips, two to two to four feet. Um, they grow really rapidly. And what I would do is I would just plant them really intense with the assumption that they're going to die. So plant them, you know, like on the same spacing you would do larkspur or something like that. You know, because your whole point is, is um, the closer you plant them, the more they're going to want to go up instead of out. And uh, you'd just be cutting whips that way. So, and so... It's an annual or perennial to me. Like, it well, it is a perennial, you know, if you're raising this in California or even there are some varieties that, um, I know like Charles little, uh, and company down here in Eugene raises and he raises them in the field. And, and unless you have any severe winter event here, you know, where we get really, really cold, there are some varieties that will take it down into the twenties and they'll still be fine. In that case, it's a perennial. And what they do with that is uh, after they get finished with harvesting, they'll come out and they'll uh, what's called coppicet or coppicet, depending on how you pronounce it, which basically means you cut the whole thing down to about mm, 10 inches above the ground. And what that does is it forces the plant to sprout out in the spring and create more whips. Uh, in that case, you can use the same plot for you know, a number of years. But in a case like you know where you're at, it would be an annual because there's no way it's going to make it through a Montana winter. <laughs> we also, we're treating it as an annual. Yeah, we too. are too. And from the perspective. If it comes back, yay. Well, yeah, most, not... it, for us, it's like, uh, you know, um, it'll survive two out of five years. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's not. So you're always prepped for it not. So, and we just haven't found those, those varieties that, uh, Charles Little is going with down there too. And then we also found too, he, you know, the larger the operation, they ship all over. And in our case, we're selling locally. So it, it, it's kind of a, a green add-on for us. And what we philosophically try to do since we're a micro farm is we try to get as intense a return as we can uh, off of what we're doing. So when we integrate cover crops and all this other kind of stuff into it, um, tying up land um, for a, a crop is we have to look at it. How does it pay? You know, because in a sense, if you if you set aside permanent places, 
for uh, eucalyptus, um, you're only harvesting on it for a brief period of time of the year, and then the rest of the year, there's no nothing being done there from a sales standpoint. And so we kind of we always kind of keep that in mind, being the smaller grower. And and um, so for us, eucalyptus this next year is going to be kind of an an, an add-on, um, kind of helping things, but. We also are just going to see, you know, each we're going to try another new variety that's out. I can't recall what it is, and we're just going to be testing it with um, our uh, customers to see did they like it, did they not care for it. I mean, it, this is what we grow what they are interested in buying, and not so much what we want to grow necessarily. Although I try all kinds of different things. But um, it's what our customers are looking for that will help them with their designs. And the other thing about eucalyptus, just as an important safety tip, is they need pretty well-drained soil. So as an example, I go back to Charles Little down there by Eugene, who's raising uh, eucalyptus. He has a very, um, he's next to a river. So he has a very well-drained soil that's kind of more on the sandy side. Our soil is, is what you'd call very heavy. Um, it's, it's great, you know, once you get it, you know, worked up, but in the wintertime, when we get a lot of rain, um, our tends to stay wetter. And so some things like eucalyptus, it's also kind of a negative for it. That's why we always kind of say, well, you know, if you grow it here, it's a two out of two out of five shot that, you know, it's going to make it through the winter. Um, so that's another reason why we kind of treat it like an annual. Awesome. All right. I'm going to have to look into that and try that. I think we do, I want to say, have a sandier soil, but don't quote me on it. But uh, cool. Awesome. All right. Something new and exciting to try. So this interview and part two of my interview with Tony and Denise. Thank you for listening to the Organic Gardener podcast. I'd like to encourage you to check out our website, organicgardenerpodcast.com. That's just organicgardenerpodcast.com. And you'll see the links to everything that we've talked about today in the show notes page and all the other episodes there. Um, you can easily search for people by name. You can download our uh, ebook on organic gardening basics um, and subscribe to our newsletter for updates and um, just different things that are going on. Uh, thanks for listening. And remember to grow local.